Heavenly Father, we come before you. We know that many have been ill and traveling, and I pray that you would heal those bodies, bring them home safely. I pray that you would bless the fellowship that we have here. Give us a sense of urgency that the time is short, Lord. Uh, we see the signs all around us, how the world is decaying morally. And, Father, we're just waiting for the signs in the heavens, the trumpet blast, the call uh, for the rapture. But we ask that as we tarry here, you would fill us full of inspiration. You would teach us your ways. You would help us to remember the stories and learn from the examples of those who have gone before us so many thousands of years ago. We pray, Lord, that all this would work for the benefit, not only of our walks, for those who are around us, but for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we left off in the book of Exodus, chapter 11. And so if you take out your Bibles and open up there, that would be great. And since we haven't been there in a couple of weeks, I'm just going to open with an introduction here. God informs Moses that the plagues are going to conclude with one final judgment. It will be worse than any of the previous plagues that have come upon Egypt. At midnight, the firstborn of every family will die on this last plague. And even the firstborn of the livestock will succumb to this plague that will come upon the nation of Egypt. Only the Egyptians and their animals will suffer this plague that we're reading about and not the Israelites. Because of the death, there will be a great wailing that we'll read about that will take place and go throughout Egypt. But not so much as a dog barking will be heard amongst the Israelites when this plague comes to pass. And once the plague has come to pass, all the Israelites, they are instructed in this chapter here to go and ask their neighbors, for articles of silver and gold, which will later be used to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, Moses actually had to say, stop bringing gold and silver. You think a church would ever do that? Stop. We have enough. Just go ahead and stop and keep what you have. But Moses did that. They had plenty. The officials recognized, the officials in Egypt, they recognized the authority that God had placed on Moses. And after the plagues had passed, they were going to go to Moses. They would bow down to him and request that he leave with all of his people because this plague is going to be so great. The purpose of this final plague is spelled out in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11. And it is so that the Egyptians will know that God makes a distinction between those Egyptians and the Israelites. For us today, God makes a distinction between those in the world and those who believe in him, between the Christians and the unbelievers. And it is rightly assumed, being familiar with the entirety of the Bible, that God was just in carrying out all ten of these plagues that had come upon the Egyptians. But why were these plagues so pervasive? Why were they so heavy and harsh and cruel? The people were tormented with flies. The Nile turned to blood. Frogs were piled up high. Lice and gnats tormented these people in their very homes. The crops were destroyed. The cattle died of plagues. They end up losing their wealth, as we will see. And now, in this final plague, at least every household will have one death in it. It, is, it just seems 
completely onerous and difficult and capricious that God would just say, all right, you have had it. And then he just keeps on imposing this, uh, this horrible, horrible existence. And, you know, I was thinking about this some more this morning. When we read about this story, the context that at least I develop in my mind, and I'm sure you do too, is small. That you have Moses, you have Pharaoh, you have officials, you have Aaron, and that's it. And so we, if we only know those people, we just compartmentalize it. It's like, where did they go to talk to Pharaoh? Well, they went to his palace. Well, how big is his palace? Well, you know, it's a palace. Maybe it had 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet or I don't know how big it was. There were millions of people involved in this, not just a couple. I mean, the scope of going into the wilderness. Now, we'll find out it's over 600,000 men that are in the nation of Israel as it goes out. That doesn't count the women. That doesn't count the children. Back then, children were considered a blessing from the Lord. Today, if somebody has three kids, we have a tendency in our society to go, "Uh, is this the last one? Or are you going to have a few more? And uh, I love these big families. Bryant's got... Bless you guys, Capuchis. I mean, you, you have these, the Montanos, you have these children that are just everywhere. And it is fantastic. And that's the type of families the Israelites would have had. That's how we arrive at this three million number. Now, remember, the cattle, the livestock, none of those cattle were affected in the nation of Israel. Out of 600,000 men, how many cattle do you think that they owned? How many possessions do you think they had? How big were their families? How many carts did they have? Did they themselves own slaves? Because it talks about slaves and aliens later that are with them when they receive the Passover. And so they had those people as well. So you're talking about millions of people. Now what is there in San Diego? 1.5, 1.53, I forget the population here, 3 million. I don't know how many people are here, but imagine all of San Diego County. And if you threw in the Egyptians with that, there's more people in Egypt than there are in all of San Diego County. And it'd be like Moses going to downtown San Diego where Pharaoh resides. And he's the evil taskmaster that's there. And he goes back to the land of Goshen. And he tells the people, the Israelites, what's going to take place. And then they decide, okay, we're going to pick up and we're going to Yuma is where they decide to go. And it's three million people and all the cattle and all the kids and they're all walking. Can you imagine what this is like? I mean, this is just... This is huge. And I was having a hard time wrapping my mind around this. And then God comes in and he goes, okay, I'm pretty much destroying every family that's here in San Diego. That's how many people there were. I don't know about you, but what would it be like if every family in San Diego lost somebody? Now, some of these households, you have 
the grandfather staying there who is the firstborn. You have the firstborn son who takes in the grandfather. You have from that firstborn son who is married to a woman. Maybe she's firstborn, maybe she isn't. Then you have the child who is firstborn. There could have conceivably been families left parentless with kids in there who lost their older sibling. And it was just a bunch of kids that would be left in Egypt. I mean, this was a burden that nobody should have to bear. God even says, it's going to be so bad, it never again will be like this. That's how bad this thing is that Moses is bringing upon, by God's authority, the nation of Egypt. And I cannot pretend to know why, or all the reasons why, God is acting so harshly. And we will not know until we see him. But there are a few things we have to keep in mind. You know this idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Uh, that's how God ordered things in the Old Testament. And it seems very fair you know, to do something like this. If you cause somebody harm, you are to be repaid in the same way. It is not to be an over-punishment for what is going on. It, the punishment needs to be equal with the crime. And we're getting away from that even in this country. Like, for instance, if you open a pizza shop and you are not for the gay rights agenda, you have to close down. Or if you don't want to bake a cake, you're fined $130,000 because you don't bake a cake. And so the justice system is getting all, it's, it's getting off kilter, so to speak. And so all of these things that were happening to the nation of Israel, there were things that were going on for instance, it was a Pharaoh who ordered the death of all the male babies in the nation of Israel. And God comes along and says, okay, I'm going to take all your firstborn. This seems concomitant. It seems to come alongside. It seems to be an equal punishment. Even though God brings even more upon the nation of Israel, God is not unjust in doing this. He created everything. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And, of course, that is in the context of knowing the entire Bible. It was Pharaoh who enslaved the nation of Israel, treated them harshly, ended up killing, I'm sure, hundreds or even thousands just because being in this form of servitude. It was Pharaoh who had been warned over and over. He had been given chance after chance to repent, but he would not. He hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. And it is God who is absolutely just in what he does. God, who must judge all sin and rebellion, was acting here. When you go to a court of law, if you get a traffic ticket, that judge can choose to have mercy on you. But when the mercy is not received, the judge will impose justice. Like if you went into a traffic court and you just mocked the judge, maybe you've watched Judge Judy, and if you have any of those and the people are just like, whatever, you know, Judge Judy, I've seen a, a couple of episodes of that where somebody is just as arrogant as they can be. And Judge Judy, I, I don't know who the other judges are. I don't know which program it was, but they just threw the book at them, so to speak. They couldn't do anything. You know, it's a television program. They don't go to jail. But just went and attacked their arrogance. And God cannot stand arrogance and pride. He puts it down. And that is the epitome it is exemplified 
in Pharaoh himself. And God says, I will have none of it. And Pharaoh kept on turning to the false gods. And God is a just God. And he will judge that kind of sin, idolatry. Thou shalt not make any graven image. That is a commandment that is coming, the second commandment that is coming to the nation of Israel as they exodus from the land of Egypt. And so God is judging all of these things. And, of course, this is a precursor to what is going to take place in the end times. God is going to judge and pour out his wrath upon the earth. And it is going to be severe. It is going to be deafening as far as its ability to impact the people. It's almost like being hit upside the head right in the ear. The people are just going to be ringing inside Death is going to be everywhere. Pestilence is going to be everywhere. War is going to be everywhere. Natural disasters are going to be ubiquitous. The oceans are going to die. The grassland is going to be burnt up. People are going to be falling just like snow from the heavens, just like hail coming down from the heavens. And that's another thing, 100-pound hailstones. They're going to be coming down. God says... It is going to be a horrible time. Islands are going to disappear. The earthquakes are going to be so severe. So God is just, and he must judge rebellion and sin. And Egypt is the example to us of what the world is, how it is caught up in its rebellion and sin. And God wanted the people to know that these Egyptian gods were false. It is God who wants us to know that he will judge all those who reject the salvation found in Jesus Christ and just as severely, if not more so, at the great white throne judgment. And even as the officials of Pharaoh acknowledge Moses in the end of the world, there are going to be leaders at that time who will acknowledge Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that. It says in the book of Philippians chapter 2 verse 10, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So anybody that you know who is arrogant, who doesn't want to hear the gospel, says just keep that Christianity to yourself. You Christians are a bunch of extremists. God is going to bring them before him. And they are going to bow the knee and they are going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord right before they're thrown into the lake of fire. That's what is to come. If that was the end of the story, we could even despair. But that's not the end of the story. God says we can avoid all of that if we simply accept the salvation. That's all you have to do. Now, some people will at this point complain I don't like the choices. I either get condemned or I have to live with God. And they complain to me, I'm sorry, I don't have another answer for that. If I were God, maybe I would have done it different, but it wouldn't have been perfect. The way God's doing it, it's perfect. And the only thing that keeps people from God is their arrogance and their pride and their self-will. And God says, give it up already. But people won't. And he's done this over and over and over in revelation chapter 20 verse 12 it says and i saw the dead great and small standing before god so everyone who has ever existed from the time of adam and eve all the way up until the time of the great white throne judgment those who have died who have passed on they will be brought back to life you might think well where are their bodies don't worry god doesn't have a problem reconstituting a body and placing that soul back inside of that body 
And so that's what's going to take place. Now, it also tells us in these scriptures here, specifically back in chapter 4, it says that Israel is the firstborn son. It says, then say to Pharaoh in verse 22, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me but you refuse to let him go so i will kill your firstborn son remember we are in chapter 11 going into chapter 12 for the passover this was in chapter 4 and pharaoh would not listen to moses when he was doing this and so this final plague god is going to take the life of all the firstborn of every household and it's important and it is necessary to make a connection us in this day and age with what took place thousands of years ago, about 4,000 years ago. Now, Israel is also referred to, or it's alluded to, it's implied that Israel is the wife of God. Isaiah 54, verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband, and it's referring to Israel. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And so God is referred to as the husband of Israel. And that comes along with a little more maturity. So reflecting on this with what is happening with the nation of Israel and what is going to happen with us today, first, a declarative statement, the world must die and be judged. God is not going to take anything from here. If you make a move, what do you do? You box up everything and you sell half of it, right? You go through every cupboard. You go through all your clothes. You go through your garage if you have one or your storage shed. You start pulling things out of there. You have garage sales. People come. You give things away to people. You're not going to do that when you go to heaven. You get to take nothing. You say, well, but I have this ring. I liked it. Sorry. It's going to be destroyed. It's part of the fall. It cannot go into the new heavens and the new earth. And in God's economy, to have a spiritual life, the old life must die. And so God is judging the nation of Israel. He's basically saying without wiping them off the face of the earth, that way is dead. You are going to forsake that. You are going to move on to a new life. And in order to be born, we all know that there's pain in childbirth, right? Now, the men haven't experienced that firsthand, but we have witnessed it. We have stand off to the side and go, this must hurt, you know, something like that. But we get to witness that. And we are witnessing the pain of childbirth, the nation of Israel, the son of God, so to speak, that God calls the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, they are being birthed. They started as a family. They started as 12 clans. And by the time they move on, they're going to be a nation. They are going to have laws. They are going to have leaders. And God is the ultimate leader, at least for a while, until King Saul is instituted as the first king of Israel. But these connections are necessary. We have to make them. Otherwise, we're going to miss what God has intended for us. And God does this with the writings of Paul in the New Testament. He makes comparisons with us in the Old Testament. For instance, it says we are all children of Abraham, which means if we believe, if we are Christians, we are people of faith. Abraham was the father of faith. So we are all, by extension, children of Abraham. And God wants us to make that connection. Now, just a little caveat. <clears throat> there have been people in my spiritual life that I've read and I've followed. They will read the scriptures 
And then they will immediately attach some prophetic thing to it and say, this is what God intended. For instance, uh, there was a Times Square church with, uh, what was his name, Wilkins, Sword in the Switchblade or something like that, if you go back a little bit. And I used to get his uh, Times Square newsletter. We actually walked into the church once when we were there in New York City. And it was a palatial place. It was several stories. It was like this indoor theater, kind of like Spreckles, but only bigger. And this guy, uh, this Pastor Wilkins, he started quoting stuff from Isaiah and say, that was the United States, and this is going to befall the United States. He was making a connection between the Old Testament and what we're doing today, but he was predicting, and he was false. He was wrong in doing so. When God makes the connection, we recognize it. But when somebody comes along and says, okay, I'm a prophet, I'm going to tell you this is what is going on based on the Old Testament scriptures. If it hasn't come to pass yet, you better be right. But otherwise, you're supposed to be considered a false prophet. If you hear anybody today pulling things out of the Old Testament and say, this will be our state, this will be our case, unless God has already told us about that, you want to be careful about doing that. Like, for instance, uh, you know, these cult leaders who take people and they end up dying because something they said out of Scripture. You want to make sure you're not following somebody like that. But this particular connection, God has made inside of Scripture. And so there are similarities between us, who are believers, and the nation of Israel. And there are similarities between Satan and Pharaoh and the world and Egypt. Also, our bodies must die and be judged. We are going to get brand new bodies. Scripture tells us that. We know that in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will receive new bodies. Now, we will recognize each other, and I think we will be transformed in a way that we will never die, just as Scripture says, and we will be renewed, completely renewed in how we look and how we feel, all of that. Also, we must be born into the kingdom. I already gave you the Scripture. He says, let my son go. In other words, he had to be born, right? And that's where Abraham, he began the lineage, which turned into the nation of Israel. And that's God's son coming to maturity. It didn't come to full fruition until the church was brought into existence. And then ultimately, we are going to become the bride of Christ. Are you following this? So you have the nation of Israel, starts with Abraham, an individual, turns into a family, turns into a clan, builds into the wife of God. You have the Christian who gets saved as an individual, becomes part of the body of Christ, which ultimately is the bride of Christ. You see those two parallel connections? God has drawn this up so we would recognize it. But the people, the leaders in the nation of Israel around the time of Christ did not recognize this. They were not making this connection, nor did they want to, and that is again why they were judged in 70 AD. We must be born into this kingdom. Just as the nation of Israel was born into the kingdom, you had to be part of the lineage of Abraham to be considered a Jew. You could proselytize, you could get into the religion, but your children, they had to be born into it. You could be grafted in, and we are grafted into the nation of Israel. You see how these connections are being all made here? And this is the first story where we start getting a clue how God is going to put it all together. The people who were experiencing it at the time were clueless. They didn't know. They, they would say, imagine somebody in Encinitas saying, hey, did you hear? Moses down in Chula Vista, he said that we're supposed to go to Yuma. 
You, you got the message, right? Well, it came from Uncle Harry, who talked to his brother, Cecil, down in National City, who heard it from Aaron's lips himself, who was speaking for Moses. You see how this would work? I mean, this land was huge. This is how it took place. And God wants us to recognize this stuff. This is how it's happening. And so there is this comparison. There is this contrast to what is being made. And God wants this connection to be made. And I've already talked to, talked to you about going too far. But God intends for us to learn these lessons from history. These are the things we're supposed to teach our children and our grandchildren and any child that we come in contact with if we are given the opportunity. And we're supposed to tell them about all the people and the plagues that took place in Egypt. We're supposed to tell them how they made the exodus. Once you go to Israel, and if you're able to go you know, uh, on the path over to Saudi Arabia, nobody wants to go to Saudi Arabia right now. I don't encourage anyone to go over there. But if you are able to make that path, take that same trek that they took, and they have already mapped it out, I mean, it starts becoming real. You go to Israel and you see the things in Israel and you go, wow, this, you think San Diego's old. You know, you see a missions, uh, Akala down there. You go, why, this is 200 years old. You know, the stuff in Israel is like thousands of years old and, and you touch it and like Patty said, is this authentic? Yeah, it's, this is the real thing. These are the stones for the Temple Mount. And I mean, it's just phenomenal. And God wants us to hold on to these stories. Do not forget what has taken place and know them so well that we can give them to our children and grandchildren and any child or any person by extension. So we're getting into Exodus chapter 12 here. This is where we have the first Passover. The first 11 chapters deal with the story of slavery of the Israelites and chapter 12 marks the beginning of freedom for these people, freedom to worship God. Now this takes place in what would be are March and April. Now, I just want to let you know, I could plant here for months on chapter 12. There is so much here. Have you seen these um, gem diggers in the mountains, those programs on television where they're digging for gems? And first they blow everything up, right? And then they start with a toothpick going through the dirt. And they... Whoa, look at this. And they have some precious gem that's about this big. And they get another one that's $20,000, $225,000. But they have to dig and they have to sift and they have to move things around. We could do that in chapter 12. I could give you all the feasts and the festivals and the calendar and spell that out, how all this is taking place, then why this is considered the religious new year when it's actually around springtime, around March or April when this Passover is taking place. And that's probably the time that Jesus was born, and that's definitely the time that Jesus died. And all this, I'm sure if we got the exact dates, God would just line all this stuff up with the same dates. That's why when things have happened, like, for instance, the inception, of the church pentecost that was a feast in israel that's when god birthed the church passover that's when christ died 
right? That's when our salvation was coming to fruition. It was on a feast. Well, what's coming next? The rapture. Well, what is that? Feast of tabernacles, feast of trumpets. That's why I get excited every time around September. Not only is it about the time of my birthday, but I could be raptured before my birthday comes and it would just be fantastic. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready. You know, I'm practicing. Are we going to go? And so you want to look at these feasts. You want to look at the Passover. You want to look at the feast of tabernacles and the feast of unleavened bread. They all have meaning for us today. God has acted with the church according to the feasts that have been set up in the Old Testament. And this is the linchpin feast, this feast of Passover. Without this feast of Passover, there would be no other feast or they would be inconsequential. They would have no significance whatsoever because it is the feast of the Passover, the sacrificing of the lamb. In the Old Testament here, as we will read, it's a sheep. They take this sheep and they sacrificed it. And there's connection between what is a sheep and are we like sheep and was Christ like a sheep? I mean, we, I can just, we can just stay here all of 2016 if I wanted to, but I'm going to push through just a little quicker than maybe we ought to. And I, I want you to know that on your own, you should be digging into this stuff. By extension, I just want to let you know, for instance, a sheep. What are sheep like? If, how many in here have read A Shepherd Takes a Look at Psalm 23? Okay, maybe about 10 of you. If you haven't read that, you need to read it. It was written by Philip Keller, who used to be a shepherd of sheep. And he describes being a shepherd to the sheep. And he was a believer. And he's making the connection how people are like sheep. Stupid sheep. These sheep, you know, they, to give you an example, he talks about in his book, a sheep has to be, I think this is the right word, shorn, right? You have to cut the wool off the sheep. Did you recently see that sheep who had been lost in the wilderness and they caught him? It was months ago and he had so much wool on him he could hardly even see out of his little beady eyes. He had 150 pounds of wool on him. If he would have fallen over, he wouldn't have been able to get up. We are like that too. We sit in church, we get all fat and happy and our wool starts to grow like this and and, and it's really bad. If you get like that and you don't get shorn every once in a while, you have to take that hair off and then you get all lean and you're spry and you get out there and, okay, what are we going to do? And you start jumping like the other sheep. Remember if one sheep starts to jump, have you ever seen goats do that? Sheep do that too. They, they jump on all fours. You have, if you've seen those videos, they, you know, they go around and they jump. Well, they can jump over nothing. And the next sheep will go, well, he jumped, so I'm going to jump. And they jump, and they, they'll all be in a line, and they all start jumping over nothing that is there just because they saw the one in front of them do it. We are like that. In church, we'll just go, well, he did it, so I might as well do it too. And the sheep, and I'm one of those two. I'm not putting myself outside of that. I am a sheep as well. We will just go do things just because somebody did it before us, and it makes no sense. It can actually be harmful. Philip Keller talks about this one ewe lamb would walk the fence line looking for a way to get out. And he would beat that sheep. He would take the rod, smack that thing, and bring it back close to him. And the ewe lamb just wouldn't listen. It would still go off. And pretty soon, the ewe lamb had little baby lambs 
following her, looking for ways to get out. They were following the example of the older female. And so you know what Philip Keller did? Made mutton stew. He killed that sheep. If we are doing something as believers, the connection can be made. Why die before your time? Are you so foolish? And God can actually judge us and say, no, you're done. Out of the pool. Get your towel. You're done with this Christianity thing. You are not hanging around anymore. You're going to lead people astray. And God can judge us like that. And so Philip Keller, he makes all of these connections and it's just insightful. Some of the parts of the book, you know, maybe yawners to you, but if you are ready to receive it, it is just an incredible thing. And so God tells us that this Passover and the sheep, Jesus Christ is the lamb of the lamb of God and sheep are innocent. Who doesn't like a little baby lamb? When we were in Israel, we were in the bus and we were looking outside the bus and we saw there were a bunch of goats and this baby goat was born just hours before and this one shepherdess was carrying it you know it's just it's little tiny things shaking in her arms and you're you hear all the women on the bus go oh you know oh he's so cute you know type of thing well that's the lamb of god innocent and cute and that's who jesus is portrayed as he is innocent, he is pure, and he is the one that is sacrificed. And you say, how unfair, how unjust. Well, let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And, of course, you can immediately make the connection. Jesus was without spot, without sin, had no defect. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And God instructs these Israelites here, although they don't know it, it is a foreshadowing to the Messiah who takes away the sin. Verse 5 says, The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames and the houses where they eat the lambs. It used to be in the King James, the doorpost and the lintel, the part that went across the top of the threshold that held the door in place. The same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. All of that is significant in verse 8. How they cook the meat and how they eat it with bitter herbs. Today, if you go to a Jewish Seder, which is the meal that they use to celebrate Passover, they will give you parsley. And parsley, you're supposed to dip it in salt water and you're supposed to put it in your mouth and it's a bitter and salty flavor. And you'll put it in there and you'll kind of wince a little bit as you eat it. And there's significance, which we will get into, about these bitter herbs. We'll talk about this. Then going on in verse 9, do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, heads, 
legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. All of that is significant. There is meaning in each one of those instructions for us as believers. And we will get into some of that. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And now, this is the statement where God says, I stand opposed to all of your gods. And all these plagues were opposed to all of the gods. There's Osiris and Isis, and they were one of these was responsible for the care of the children, and yet God is going to judge each one of these Egyptians and their household, and somebody's going to die. A lot of children are going to die, and it shows that these gods have no power to maintain the life of any child whatsoever. It also says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, hence the name Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I I strike Egypt. What is it that makes us Christians? It is our faith in Jesus and his shed blood. This blood is a sign for the angel of death. That this angel of death will look at the blood and say, there is mercy upon this household, moves to the next household. Now, if you haven't seen Cecil B. DeMille's the Ten Commandments. It is a nice production. It's not entirely accurate. For instance, Ramsey, who was played by Yul Brenner, <laughs> the first original perfect head that was in the movies. It probably wasn't Ramsey's that was the Pharaoh. You start doing some research into this, and it could have been like six different other Pharaohs. Ramsey's would have come later. Uh, if you do the research into the timeline here. But it it was good as, as far as some of the depictions were concerned. Like, for instance, remember how the angel of death, if you saw that movie, comes down. And it comes down, he comes down like a cloud, a mist. And it goes through the streets and it goes to each one of the houses. I don't know exactly how this took place, but I do know that all the houses were affected right around midnight. That's when you would have started hearing the wails and the screams of people just dropping left and right. And the Israelites, I'm sure they could have heard the commotion. It would have been so loud because hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, are suffering this plague when the nation of Israel has been protected from it. Now, this idea of the Passover, it's also called the Pesach. There's a Shavuot, which deals with the giving of the law that's on the second day of the Passover that the Jews celebrate today. There's the Jewish Seder, which is the meal. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I will talk about the festivals a little later. But this 10th plague, this death that is coming upon the people, it is the center of Jewish history. This is where the nation is being born. And this plague is built on the relationship with God, and it has to do with the blood of an innocent victim. That is what the Passover is all about. It's different from the other plagues because it's interactive. The nation of Israel was participating in this. They actually had to slaughter 
the lamb. They had to draw the blood. They had to paint the doorpost and the lintel. Now, if you were an agrarian society, if you were constantly killing animals for their food, you may not be so adverse to that. But today, can you imagine taking an animal at your house, slaughtering it, letting the blood flow out, grabbing it in a bucket, taking a piece of hyssop, and putting it all around your door? The trim around my door is white. If I took that blood and slapped it up there, people would come by and they go, what on earth is Bill doing? Is what they would say. And everybody was doing it. I'm sure as they're, they're in Encinitas, right? And they're going, are you sure about this? this is what, yeah, that, you know, that's what Harry said. And talk to Cecil down there who heard Aaron. He, this is what we're supposed to do. All right, man. And so they just, they put this stuff up. Okay, we're, now we're supposed to go inside, right? Shut all the windows and doors, turn off the television. We're not going to listen to the radio. We're, we're going to sit and eat this all dressed up and ready to go like we're going to go for a hike, right? Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. You see, if you start putting it in the modern day context, you're going, wow, this is weird. This is something that is a little beyond us, but this is how God decided to move. So this is the Passover. I'm going to explain this a lot more. But this Passover is not only significant for the Israelites. It's not only significant for the church. It is significant for all of us. We have to understand what is going on here. Now, stop the hour. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Here it is. When we get into this, people who receive the Passover cannot receive it unless they're circumcised, the men. The men have to be circumcised whether they are slaves or aliens or Jews. This is a lasting ordinance that's given to the nation of Israel. What in the New Testament has replaced circumcision? I heard it. Baptism, right? What... Did they eat of in the Old Testament and Passover? The lamb. What do we eat of? The bread. The lamb of God is in the Old Testament. The bread is in the New Testament. Circumcision is in the Old Testament. Baptism is in the New Testament. You couldn't receive the Passover unless you were circumcised. The question for you, can you receive communion if you are not baptized? I want you to go find out. I want you to do all kinds of research. I want you to come back, and we're going to talk about that. Any questions? Good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessing upon our digging into the Scriptures, upon our search I ask, Lord, that you would just enlighten us, that you would help us to grasp the depth, the width, the height of what is taking place here with the Passover. We know that you want us to have this information, but help us to be diligent in seeking after it. And we know that you will bless us with it because it is your will, according to your word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.